A word to the wise. We are an explicit podcast tackling content with adult themes, as well as entering spoiler territory if you aren't caught up with us. Today, we are finishing part one of Dark Age. I believe that is up until, or through, rather, uh, chapter 17. Or page, like, 143, I think, in the hardcover first edition. Something like that. Hey there, this is Cross. And I'm PJ. And we are Words and Whiskey, a podcast for veteran and novice readers alike. We tackle fiction novels and love to talk about what we're drinking. You should think of us as your intoxicating weekly book club. Crossland. I moved. I'm in a new place. You did. There's a shit ton of echo in here. So Andrew is going to fucking hate me. But. Oh no. It's a good spot. We'll see how it actually turns oh. out. I don't think there will be a lot of echo in the in the recording, but there's like a vent with the HVAC right above me, so that's fun. So I've got a different audio floor than usual, and oh, it'll be a good time. It might be a good time. I think that, if anything, Andrew will be briefly furious. We'll spend some time with you next week tuning, mm-hmm. and then we'll uh, continue, continue on his quest for uh, ultimate sound purity. I just love throwing thorns in his side. When it comes to that, do you throw thorns into people's sides? Is that how it works? Well, I do. I don't think most people do that, but (laughs) (laughs) Um, there are probably better better ways to do it. Like, I don't know, jabbing them in there, but long range thorns are, you know, a thing. Um, Okay. (laughs) So today is our, what, third episode covering Dark Age by Pierce Brown, Mm -hmm. and we're going to be tackling chapters 12 through 17. But before we do that, let's uh, let's talk about what we're drinking. PJ, what are you having? Well, Crossland, as I mentioned, I moved. By that, I mean I half moved. And part of what didn't move was my liquor collection. So I have a beer. It's a Volksopper. (laughs) Which is a Vienna lager from Portage Brewing Company. Where are they from? Walker, Minnesota. But mm. recently, a couple years ago, their brewery burned down. So Uh-oh. they've they've been having a hell of a time. But they've they're on the back uh, on the spring back, I guess. Do awesome stuff. It's a really really great beer. So happy to support them, and uh, I love Vienna lagers. So. I'm happy to have that. I do not have anything following that up, technically, but I do. I did just open another beer because I don't know. We've been we've been prepping for this episode for like an hour and a half because once again Tim jumped in and started chatting with us. So uh, <laughs> I've got hop cir- hop circles exhibit B from Blackstack, just kind of as a nice. I, and just I'm, to talk about go ahead. Oh, I'm using this as like the the beer or the drink that I cheers any dead people with. So there's going to be quite a few of those. <laughs> yes, <there are laughs> definitely quite a few of those this week. And just to just to mention the Tim thing, if you aren't a member of our Patreon, you might want to join if you want to learn more about the Steam Deck in the near future, because he is a an absolutely massive advocate. And I would be shocked if he didn't worm that into either a conversation or a full bonus podcast episode on the podcast that we share speculative knowledge. It's only on the Patreon. Correct. So feels feels imminent to me at this point yeah that's gonna happen <laughs> there's no way that doesn't it. happen yeah that absolutely. there's absolutely no way yeah right 
What have you got? I am having a drink that was also voted on and submitted by our patrons inside of our Discord as well. So I am having an El Presidente. A little bit of a spin on it. Just a small, small spin. As opposed to using grenadine, I actually use cherry extract in the El Presidente. So for those of you who don't know, it's white rum. It is a little bit of triple sec, some blanc vermouth. And then a generally a bar spoon of grenadine, so not a whole lot, just enough to give it kind of a back flavor. So a little bit of spin on that is just the just a bar spoon of uh, cherry extract. And I would say if I were to remake this cocktail, I would add just like a dash of simple syrup. Cherry extract is not as sweet as grenadine is. And so like just a little bit of sweet backing would be a good thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but all told, it tastes more like a martini. So it's also very much in that flavor crowd and an orange twist garnished. So uh, garnish. So in that case, maybe the uh, the lack of sugar works out for it if it drinks more like yeah. a martini now. Yeah, and that's that's kind of what I think about it. It feels less like an El Presidente, which is sort of like an upclass version of a rum drink meant to stand up to like a, a martini, but have like a little bit of little like a tiny bit of a sweet back. It's not a whole lot, but yeah, I still really dig it. Still really like it. The only other thing I would change is I would drink it out of a coupe glass instead of my lowball. Yeah, but I need to get here. Some, I am. I need to get some coupe glasses. Coupe? Yeah. yeah. Is it is coupe? it coupe or coupe? coupe? I don't know. Don't we call the cars coupes, but we call the glasses coupes because no one's consistent at all. Well, who would want to be consistent in a time like this? <laughs> consistent in a time like this. <laughs> Back to the Bo Burnham special, always. <laughs> and then to follow it up, I'm having a Highland Brewing Company, uh, which is out of Asheville. High Pines Imperial IPA. Very straightforward. Uh, it's good. It's citrusy. It's got some blueberry and the pininess that I'd kind of expect. All in all, it's like a seven. It's good. Awesome. Six, seven, something like that. Six and a half. I've taken a few sips of this Vienna lager. It is very good. <laughs> I'm jealous because I would I would love a really good refreshing beer after this cocktail. Like every sip I take of the cocktail is like, it's good, but it's like a martini. And then like taking a sip of the beer is like, mm-hmm. oh God, yeah, <laughs> these flavor profiles do not the, mesh at all. Viennas are always so interesting for me because they're mm-hmm. simultaneously really complex and flavorful, but also refreshing, strangely. Like they're, they're deeper, darker flavors that come through, but it's still just crisp and somehow light. I love it. I fucking love it. Yeah, it sounds it sounds delicious. Mm-hmm. With that, let's get into last week's predictions. So we've got a couple to talk about here. Oh boy, um, do we. <laughs> one, I wanted to bring this one back up. We had actually technically answered it last week, I think. The question was, what is Operation Tartar Sauce? And we, we kind of knew what it was. But this week, we got to really see it and see some of the things that even you talked about. And you said those engines will be used to create a tidal wave, which forces will ride into battle. And... You're wrong, but you're not entirely wrong. There is a tidal wave, and they did ride the storm into battle. Explicitly in those terms, they were described as riding the storm into battle. I feel like I'm more right than wrong. Your your sentence here that you yourself wrote <laughs> says, Those engines will be used to create a tidal wave, comma, which the forces will ride into battle. Not that they would ride the storm into battle, but that they would ride the tidal wave. Mm. I'm going with you're more wrong than right, but I would say that everyone, again, in our no PJ zone discord was freaking the fuck out because they're like, what? (laughs) What? Um, As soon as tidal wave came up in this section, I'm like, oh, I wonder how many people were like freaking out about me saying tidal wave in the last episode. 
It's a fun little metagame commentary for me because other people get to react to shit when they hear it, like I react to stuff, especially when it doesn't pay off for a while and like everyone freaks out about it. It's great. Is it even better when I, is it better or worse when I forget about my prediction? I don't think that anyone else really forgets your predictions except for you. Okay, it is just me. All right. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I'm pretty sure most of the rest of us keep with it. Fair enough. Obviously I do as best as I can. All right. Next one here. Does this skirmish end before the end of the next section? You said no. And I kind of want your thoughts. Is it over? Um, It's unclear. It's mostly over, and I think, I genuinely believe this is the last we'll hear of any of the conflicts, so effectively, yes, I think it's over. Okay. But All right. that we ended a part, we ended a section. I should have known this. I should have taken this into consideration. This is the end of part one. Yep. Like, it makes sense that the, the conflict would be over, but that was not in my mind when I answered and asked that question, because I wrote that myself. <laughs> <laughs> I also felt All right. I felt funny by calling it a skirmish, but it, it feels kind of on brand now that uh, Darrow just called the uh, the entire like platoon that Lysander was with a what brief uh, resistance. Yeah, brush. We brush with light resistance. Or light something resistance. Like that. That's it. Yeah. So you know, I don't feel that far off calling it a skirmish. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, what's what's a what's a battle for Darrow versus a a uh, death march for someone else are two very different things. Yeah, could not could not agree more. Yeah, so you get to take that drink, and then the final one here is in this battle section: who lives, who dies, who tells their story. Uh, I didn't write that last part. Of that was you, Hamilton. Yeah, right. I know. I know. So you wanted to talk through? Yeah. This. So I I ran through a bunch of them. So I said Rona dies. Which is wrong, so that's one for me. Lysander dies, which is wrong. Two for me. Alexander lives. Wrong? Unclear. I don't know. I don't know how to call that one. Kind of assumed dead, right? Yeah, I mean, assumptively he drowned. Should we just call that? But it's not explicitly stated, right? We'll we'll circle back to that. Circle back to that. Sure. Thraxa lives. That's correct. Uh, That's one for you. Ajax Mm -hmm. lives. That's correct. That's two for you. Serafina dies. That's correct. That's three for you. Atlas lives. That's correct. That's four for you. Atalantia lives. Unclear. Simply because it's not stated one way or the other. Orion lives. Wrong. That's three for me. Pytha dies. Wrong. Four for me. Lyria dies. Unclear. (laughs) (laughs) I can't believe you thought that, like, Lyria would get resolved here. (laughs) Like... (laughs) We're going to introduce her and make her have a brain aneurysm, which is what you put down within a, what, anyway. What, what did I write? I wrote, uh, we get a brief glimpse of, into the life of Lyria, and she has a sudden aneurysm induced by torture and dies. So Oof. that didn't happen yet. <laughs> Not So yet. at the moment, we're four each, excluding the unclear ones. And Atalantia is not addressed in this book or in this section doesn't come up in this section so mm-hmm. i'm i'm cool with just kind of ignoring that one same with lyria but alexander what do we call that what i'm gonna say is we just push we'll just hold it over when and if the question gets answered it'll get answered otherwise it'll be at the end of the book or maybe the end of fucking next book who fucking knows well i explicitly like said this is going to be for the next section so we didn't have to push things oh. over well then what do you think happened to alexander i think he fucking died okay then it sounds then like wrong. uh you drink yep, yep. All right, so five for me, four for you. Yep. All All right. right. Sweet. Cheers. Cheers. 
we're probably going to cut this out because it's just going to be us slurping for a little bit. Uh-huh. I'm drinking a strong cocktail um, of which I poured a double of because I was like, oh, yeah, it's going to be real good. It's going to be and it is good. I don't want to. Uh, this is not a bad cocktail, but I probably didn't need a double because I forgot that it was all liquor. Yeah. It's so tastier as I go, though. I'm excited to find out when Lyria died real quick. There's one other thing here. You also said Darrow lives but loses all the other howlers except Callaway and has to live with that weight. I, oh, I did. That's mm, there. We, we counted this out. The remaining howlers are Severo, Screwface. The, the remaining original howlers yeah. are Severo, Screwface, Clown, Pebble. That's it. And that's it. Yeah. Screwface, Clown. Yeah. Just the four. Right. Yep. So it, you said all howlers. I feel like that's that the mistake here. That is... All right. How many of those, how many howlers are there? Uh, a number. I'm just going to say you just take one. Those could have been some pretty high stakes if you had ruled as individuals, but been a dick about it, right? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So with that, let's get into the chapters. We start off in Lysander's perspective with chapter 12, White Golems. So the opening page, I think, from Lysander is a fantastic one, one that colors a picture of a fresh soldier being marched to war. Like mentioned by Pytha previously, he's got to earn the title of Iron Gold, and I don't think there exists a world where he's prepared for this exact situation. He is clearly not prepared for the actual brutality and kind of the coldness of war. And you that coldness is reflected directly in his prose. I, I know a lot of people dislike Lysander, but his character is absolutely brilliantly written, regardless mm-hmm. of, of your like feelings about him as a person. Yeah. I mean, I don't think there's really any dispute that he's a well-written character. This almost comes off to me as like a coming-of-age story, sort of similar to the way that mm-hmm. it was for Darrow for the first two books. But it's a lot more accelerated, and it's kind of fucked up. It's kind of a fucked up coming of age story you know totally totally and i think actually to keep the the red rising comparisons and the coming of age point rolling it it doesn't get less grim from here especially as like ajax commits a war crime and i I bring this up because i think it'll make sense in in sort of context with what you're pointing to in terms of the the older books so the quote here the sense of certain Uh, certainty and purpose that brought me here is fading i feel like a boy from a crowd who thought he could tame lions by stepping in the cage with him seraphina is fine in the cage i i wanted to use this little section to bring exactly what you just brought up up that most of these golds have obviously passed through the institute of some kind or or a gauntlet of another kind but lysander hasn't earned that peerless scar he hasn't earned any kind of combat experience what do you think this says about the way that golds and even like darrow himself was taught brutality from from kind of the pov and how it kind of became normal i think for us so just addressing lysander himself at the moment he feels and seems completely like unprepared and out of place because he is. That's exactly what mm-hmm. he is. He has been a scholar and a ward for his entire life. <laughs> he hasn't been trained for battle like this. And while the institutes are pretty brutal and unforgiving and even lethal at times, they provide a level of callousness to the horrible, like horrifying reality of war. And I think it's good in this moment that Lysander is actually kind of realizing that. And if he if he were to really just kind of blindly believe that he was ready for this, he'd be in a world of hurt, you know? He'd be he'd be in fucking trouble. So him realizing that like shit, like I'm kind of out of my depth. 
And he doesn't say that explicitly, but he kind of shows it through his actions and through his just kind of unease with what's going on. It, it, it means he's at least aware enough to understand that he's got to be fucking careful. Oh, yeah. And, and there's, there's absolutely no question of that to me as, as we start thinking about the way the place that Lysander kind of takes in, in the rest of this section that we read here, right? Like he kind of doubles down on a lot of these thoughts and he is out of his depth. But I think what's interesting is in a lot of ways, Lysander at the very least starts to act as opposed to just talk a little bit, which I think is a good thing for him. Yeah. One one other component here as well that I found really interesting in terms of the sort of what Ajax does killing all of those children, Kalandora replies after Lysander points out that it's a war crime is that it's only a crime if there is a court. And oh, oh boy, that's that's some shit. If a tree falls in a forest, did you commit a war crime? <laughs> <laughs> maybe <laughs> but if no one's around to judge it does it matter so i mean i i think that in another way this is almost a different lens on to the victors go the spoils because in in reality like if you defeat the other side you're probably not going to be tried for your war crimes yeah like, i mean who's gonna try you yeah i guess a right. just government but the society isn't just we know that what so, government is just well, give an example there isn't one there, well there's an art there's an <laughs> argument within this series that at the very least the republic is a just government it's not it's not entirely and it's not without its faults but it's more just on average than it isn't <laughs> more not horrible well one might say less one might say less horrible, <laughs> less horrible but. yes I'm going to go with more not horrible. Fair enough. <laughs> it's not. Fair it's enough. a fucking terrible, terrible. <laughs> Sometimes I just have to let you have things as opposed to mm. saying anything else. Calidora, though, proves herself to be very, very wise throughout this section. I think that she also is like a fantastic add to the story. I, I love the discussion that she has with Lysander about war. We already mentioned that it's only a crime if there's a court, of course. But she also says cruelty is necessary. Yet cruelty is a thermal run is is a thermal runaway. And I think that that is a brilliant quote. I think that this it, this entire section is stuffed with with brilliant quotes. But uh, ah, wow, what a what a critical lens to view war through. Yeah, it's almost using cruelty as a tool, mm -hmm. you know, and it's necessary, as she says. But understanding that it can be used as a tool while not being completely sucked into the idea of being cruel is something that's kind of lacking from the rest of the story. It's kind of refreshing to see somebody point that out and somebody really show, not necessarily show restraint, but give reason as to why they don't show restraint in certain moments. Yeah, yeah, like when um, Atlas recommends anything or does anything. <laughs> I don't think he's the right example for this. No, I think that he's totally restrained. Fully restrained. Yep, he is an upstanding citizen of the worlds. Not not a weird whisper of anything weird from behind his weird mask doing weird, weird things. Mm -hmm. Yep, weird yep. baby faces. So argument, ar there's an argument to be had about whether or not Atlas has really gone down the route of thermal runaway as saying basically like the, the chain reaction or the explosion that might happen from like a nuclear bomb continuing to feed itself, right? As it perpetuates, mm -hmm. I believe is kind of the... 
yeah. the discussion here, right? Yeah, you've got to you've got to be careful use it like a using tool. it because if you use it recklessly, it will blow up in your face. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, which I think is kind of a good kind of metaphor for the way that the society treated all the other colors. I mean, think about it like gasoline. It can be harnessed and used as an engine to propel something forward with with uh, restraint and with. Dude, I just huff gasoline. Well, I don't know I any know. other use for gasoline. I mean, I was a dumb child. I was a very dumb child, and my I'm, I'm sitting my here neighbors in the and I had a very fun time. You are sitting in the closet right now. Absolutely, you are. But we had a very With a fun can of time gasoline. taking gasoline, putting putting a little bit of gasoline in Dixie cup, lighting it on fire, and hitting it with golf clubs. <laughs> wow. That makes just a big, big fireball. It's a lot of fun, but don't don't try that at home, kids. Don't do that. Please. You've already been given your your warning on the front end of this podcast, but I have to reiterate it. <laughs> exactly. That said, wow. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, I'd do it again. I bet. <laughs> I'm probably better at it now. You know, I'd probably hit it further. We, we would also just shoot it with airsoft guns. That. <laughs> seems bad it created like spurts of flaming liquid okay so then before we expose any other war crimes that pj's committed uh it's not illegal um it's not well, advisable but it's not illegal i don't know uh, you know and i don't technically to know that either <laughs> But I can't imagine it's illegal, explicitly. I would go so far as to maybe it might even be a state law. Um, you know, like, that seems like something that would be written don't, in a state law, like a property law. Dixie Cups with, with golf clubs? Is that the law? No, the law would probably have something to do with actually lighting the gasoline on fire. Well, I mean, but that's irrelevant. In a similar way, I don't think you're allowed to possess Molotov cocktails, and that's basically the same thing. There was no rags lit on fire in our... No, you just lit the fucking thing on fire. (laughs) (laughs) All right, point being, uh, we're introduced to Roan T. Flavinius, and what a man he is. You know, like a real, real man's man. You know, shake you on the shoulder. Now, I I really like Roan, and I think that he's a very honorable man, of course, and his whole thing about the blood, and the conversation with him is just fantastic in, in a lot of different ways. And even Lysander's reflection on the only greys that are even close to him in terms of overall skill are the Nakamura's one of, of course, of whom is dead and the other being holiday. So So he's very close to a dead dude is what you're saying. Well, in terms of skill. Um, (laughs) but yeah, I mean, it was Aja that killed him. What'd you make of him and Julia Albolona's termination of his contract for Lysander and that kind of political ball. So as far as him in general, it's kind of interesting to see another non gold be on the level of gold, sort of like Quicksilver was. Sure. Is he's still around, right? Yep. I can't imagine he's still kind of well regarded within gold circles, but he was for a long time. <laughs> as far as the Julia Bologna thing, Julia Ow Bologna, sorry, got to get the ow in there. Ow, ow, Bologna. It's kind of interesting how much his connection to to the Bolognas, even if it's been terminated, is going to fuck things up for Lysander and his his standing with the rest of the uh, 
the people that he's running with at the moment, you know? Yeah, I, I think what's what's even interesting to add is how did Julia acquire or get this information, right? How did it make it back to her? Did she hear about Cassius and sort of his sacrifice? And like, is this a play there? Like, there's there are a lot of questions kind of raised in terms of her involvement in a way yeah. as well. You know? guessing, I think that feeds into what you're saying. I'm guessing that she is not on like strictly no speaking terms with the rim. I could see her and Dido being like in in regular contact with each other yeah i mean i don't think anything passed between the rim and the core for the most part for you know the better part of the decade but there there were obviously a couple of things like the messages that dido got from the ophian guild that happened in iron gold that was mentioned so there's clearly maybe some passing of information but it seems very 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 infrequent at best but recently it could be more. oh yeah more recently sure Sure. I'm talking yeah. like any sort of information that's happened recently. I could see Dido and Julia being uh, pen pals, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when you're sending messages across the solar system, pen pal is probably the way to think about it. Yeah. Yeah. And then we get to the hypercanes, which are, I mean, we're going to spend a lot of time discussing over the course of this week because they're fucking everywhere. But I love the little line that Lysander here has. Grandmother, you left landmines everywhere. And boy, did she leave some fucking landmines here. Yeah. Yeah. There's the, uh, so not long after that, or maybe right around that quote, there's the, uh, the conversation where Lysander divulges that information that the storm gods are are there and the people are surprised and it's kind of insane to me that they'd be surprised and it's insane to to lysander as well that they would be surprised that the person that launched the burning of Rhea would have contingency plans basically everywhere Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And that's that's kind of, uh, again, that is kind of a shocking thing. And again, another brilliant writing thing on Lysander's point from Lysander's point being like you guys being shocked is hilarious because boy, oh, boy, you don't know all the shit that I know. And I've got a photographic memory, except for some little weird things that I don't remember about my mom. Um, <laughs> but other than that, you know, d- yeah, I mean, I can't I can't help but agree with you that I'm shocked that they're shocked, but also I'm not shocked because that's that's the type of thing that like you you earn so much buy-in from a population over time potentially that you know they don't think it would ever be them for whatever reason my government would never do that to me jesus Uh, (laughs) (laughs) all right with that the storm (laughs) i'm good i'm not gonna elaborate but yeah the storm absolutely decimated the force heading for hyperion pulling the rip wings out of the sky flinging men and women to their deaths and the quote here and all at once the mission that took a month to plan a, a half a year to prepare one that was to be executed by men and women who've made a vocation of war comes with comes apart with no explanation except that the reaper is sharing our planet and that my family is a line of paranoid tyrants and i love i love that little bit of like the the fact that his grand mother fucked this up for them from the grave is fascinating yeah i mean it's almost apocalyptic like if you were standing there as like just a soldier in the army and you just get oh your entire battalion gets obliterated by a sandstorm or a hurricane or fucking whatever hits you Mm -hmm. like that's that's an act of god right like that's all you're thinking like this is this is an apocalypse this is not natural but there are some silver somewhere Uh, that run insurance companies that are totally rewriting the clauses on their contracts or double checking to make sure that they accounted for hypercanes from storm gods, like for sure. Yeah. 
and explicitly just, like outlining hypercanes from storm gods versus regular hypercanes like yeah or an active god or the reaper or <laughs> we are not paying insurance on all of your people that died and or i mean maybe they the start selling stuff. reaper insurance <laughs> <laughs> it's very expensive and does not pay out easily. No, no. You got to fight for that one. Instead, perhaps a bounty would be better. <laughs> but I, I totally interrupted you and I apologize for that. You were saying it was apocalyptic and that it's a terrifying sight to behold and witness. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's I just want to be like just a normal, a normal are. person within the army and understand what was going through their mind when that hit. If anything was other than like rubble. <laughs> <laughs> you said i want to be and i said where the people are really quietly into my microphone because i didn't want to interrupt you again but... oh my god <laughs> <laughs> my brain is on total tangent mode today oh uh, this is gonna be a great episode for that to happen because it's not like anything happened here like this is a pretty, pretty nothing weak important sauce, nothing big pretty weak nothing, sauce section not at all very very mild not not a whole lot happening hey you want to talk about currency for like 45 minutes (laughs) (laughs) so then the the group splits in two you know right after this one to take the storm god down and the other to trudge through as best they can to heliopolis seraphino lysander kalandora and roan head that way while ajax and the rest of the leopard legion continue on to heliopolis do you want to know about like the one lesson that i've always learned in D D, splitting the party is always a good idea so i'm i'm in for it i think uh i think they made the right choice here uh <laughs> i was gonna say that scooby-doo taught me that splitting the gang is always a good move yep exactly like double the <laughs> double the distance they've got more ground to cover it's all good that's how you can go in all directions <laughs> i think they should split you can go in more. So many more directions every person yeah. should go a different way no one would die that way no of course not no not at all (laughs) (laughs) but what an exciting way to end the chapter yeah fucking fucking idiots idiots, for sure for sure with that we move into chapter 13 darrow the plains of caduceus so this is a really short chapter i think it's two or three pages but it is some of the best writing in this book so far i think it is the most poetic chapter i think by far as he describes the drakenjagers walking over the fields the plains and stomping on the flowers and painting them gold um and then later that being smashed and painted red and there's just there's so much here that's brilliant, uh, including the very first line, which is the door of my trap slams closed. The storm is here. And this is fuck this chapter, dude. Boy, I love it. Boy, is the storm here, man. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. It's a fucking monster of a storm. Even beyond just the actual physical storms that they've conjured, the storm of the war that they're waging is intense. Ah. <sighs> The I really I I like I don't know actively what to say about this chapter in a number of ways. Um, Something that I did want to point out is Caduceus is the name of the uh, like medical staff, Hermes staff. Right. 
So if you've seen that word before, that's where the staff with the snakes wrapped around it being one of messages and Hermes is also Mercury. So it makes sense that this is all kind of around that in a larger way. Mm -hmm. But it is. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Harold's Wander Staff. So but I really don't know what to say about the rest of this chapter. I can't I can't pick it apart without just absolutely loving each individual line. The Drakenjager is destroying things. The new the four Alpha Omega nukes fired and sort of Darrow's whole manifestation of desolation that happens in this chapter on top of a beautiful, beautiful canvas of the environment that they're fighting on mm-hmm. and over. It's it's nuts. So one thing that I always have a tough time with with this book um, and this series in general is scale, especially when, when it comes to warfare. So having having them explain that there's 5,000 Drakenjagers and each of them is 40 meters tall kind of helps with that sense of scale. Like the, the, mm-hmm. Because of the way that we're interacting with Darrow and the people immediately around him, it feels like a small like task force instead of a fucking army. And this mm-hmm. helps kind of make that scale make more sense. So... I- I think that that's something that this book does heroically well versus some of the other books, because a lot of the other books have felt like small armies, unless it's the the ship battles um, in which they get a little bit more descriptive. But you're 100% correct. The 5,000 Drakenjagers earlier, the losing hundreds of thousands of soldiers, the sort of the the or millions, um, the, the millions dead as the Red Reach explodes, all of the various people that are liquidated. And as they describe that, it just becomes this becomes such a grander space opera in the space yeah. of 170 pages. So no, we're I, not even there. It's like 150 pages right now. I think, and I I don't know if this is exactly where this is coming from, but I think one of the main problems is I'm used, it it hasn't changed the way it was written as far as like combat and stuff goes from the first book at the Institute where it's like 30 dudes fighting 30 dudes. Like it's, it's written in the same way from the same perspective. So it feels like a small, just, just strike force, but he's commanding an army. And that doesn't translate quite as well, but this this section kind of helps that. There are definitely moments earlier in this book and in other books that it feels bigger and more grand. But in general, the style that a lot of these conflicts are written in feel the same as they were in the first book. And that kind of gets confusing in, in hmm. just in, in my imagination of how things are going. If that makes sense. Sure, sure. I'm not Fair expecting enough. other people to feel that way. It's just, I don't know. That's me. The, uh, the literature newbie over here. Ayo. Ayo. Final note of this chapter, of course, with Alexander Darrow is the execution of Scorpio Alvotum. And it's just kind of a fantastic footnote on the chapter. For a hundred years of rape, genocide, and enslavement of your fellow man, I sentence you to the mud. And I see the parallel here that's that's similar and obvious in a lot of ways to the quote that Carnus said forever ago and that's clearly been ingrained in Darrow as he's crawled out of the mud so many times and this sort of idea of crawling out of the mud being a frequent one between Darrow and Lyria of you know fly so high in mud mud you lie you know how dare you crawl out and in the same kind of way he's putting that that badness back on them in a proper way here I think I sentenced you to the mud is an even better quote like it doesn't rhyme, but it feels it feels cooler. I don't know. I like the way that this went. Yeah, I I totally I totally agree with you. It's 
fucking ridiculous. Do you have any other thoughts in this chapter? This is one of my favorite chapters in the book. I just literally don't. I. It's poetic. The whole thing yeah. is poetry. It's beautiful. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm good with that. All right. With that, chapter 14, Lysander into the storm. In the midst of their storm walk, Lysander and crew, the the Scooby gang as they were, uh, run into Cicero Alvotum and his squadron of legionnaires. He's got kind of the familiar air of golden like stink about him, and he almost talks like Lysander might. I think I pinpointed it when I was reading a little bit later this week on in the reading. And it came to me that he reminds me of Tactus in a lot of ways in the way that he kind of talks. It's an interesting picture, of course, given that we just witnessed the death of his father and he's talking as though his father might could potentially win the battle, even though he's kind of resigned himself that that's unlikely. I I made this note. Somehow he seems even more pretentious than Lysander. (laughs) Like if you were to create a cartoon of what it meant to be gold within gold society... That's kind of what it seems like. It's just ridiculous how flowery his wording is and just kind of over the top in that sense, conversationally. But I'm sure he's a fine dude other than that, but that's kind of all we get from him in the moment. I'm with you in that. I I think that Cicero has the right to be an interesting character here and he starts to kind of define himself as something that could develop into something interesting, but he isn't a whole lot more than... um, Oh, in a way, a douchebag at the end of all this. But that's that's yeah. okay. We'll get there eventually. Yeah, you said it, not me. <laughs> and I compared him with Tactus. Isn't that apt for me? Finally, they arrive at the eye of the storm underneath the storm god. The creatures of the desert live here hiding from its terrifying vortex. And my god, what a, what a kind of sight this whole thing is. Uh, the, the sort of different gravity wells and the spinning around. Lysander also fixate on Darrow's decision here. And the likelihood that his decision to raise the storm gods would kill millions. And he he even has an understanding of that. But it's, I mean, just the moral quandary that Lysander is dealing with, too, as it relates to Darrow, is an interesting one. Did you have any thoughts about that? Um, sort of his moral judgment of Darrow? Man, I don't know if I can really break down any moral judgments of Darrow right now, because I don't, I don't think he has the ability to break down any moral judgments of Darrow. Darrow himself, I mean. Because All right. through this chapter, he kind of evolves that, you know? He kind of evolves that, meaning uh, Lysander evolves his opinion of Darrow, no, no, or Darrow, Darrow evolves himself? Darrow evolves his own opinion of himself, in a way. Yeah, that makes sense. I think we'll get into and we'll that, talk- I'm sure, in later chapters. We will definitely talk about that in a bit. While preparing... To storm the storm god, <laughs> the terrible violence begins a moment, like just a moment before they're they're about to take off and go. And just the quote here. And then the entire top half of Seraphina's star shell disappears as a rail slug the size of a man rips Romulus's daughter clean in half. My commands stick in the base of my throat as the legs of the mech teeter and collapse sideways, spilling her intestines out the top. And just like that, baby, the morality and fatality of this war rears its mortality, rather not morality, mortality and fatality. This war rears its ugly head as the Raws lose another to a war for the core. This is what I love about this chapter and kind of this whole book are some of our biggest characters, the ones that we're following closely, can just kind of die quickly and unceremoniously, just 
like that. You know, I don't know. Yeah, I, this, it, this it, book it's, it makes it feel so much more real. I guess because it's not going to always be a long, drawn out, dramatic end to a character. Sometimes it's just like, oh, they got hit by a fucking railgun. All right. Yeah, and I mean, it's not like we didn't have. I here's here's what I think this book improves upon over previous books, right? So we talked about some of the considered OG howlers from the Institute, Harpy and Rotback. Harpy dies in what is effectively in Iron Rain. You know, it's it's a very similar moment of war. If mm-hmm. I remember correctly, I think it's Harpy. Um, very similar moment of war. But the difference is we didn't really know Harpy. We had, we had no real picture. But we've spent a whole fucking book with Serafina talking about her, having Lysander ponder feelings for this thing. This whole catch a predator motif <laughs> that you've been running with is now ended unceremoniously. Yeah, all um, those notes are although I still, guess could, they've been passed on to the, uh, the chief inspectors and Lysander is fucking going down. I can't assure you. <laughs> 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 well, it just moves on to Calendora, right? Like, it's just, that's the the hots are just going there, right? She's older, though, right? Right, right. But it's still, the whole, like, aunt thing doesn't get you? Yeah. Um, you described I mean, her like an aunt? You know, it's like, you know. What are the laws? Uh-oh. Okay, well, with that... <laughs> This is a big okay. Well, with that episode, <laughs> you just keep you just keep pushing those boundaries, PJ. Uh, it's Jesus. So I, I I totally agree with you. I can't help but think and like love the story because it does it does treat the characters like people. people. I think I said it originally in like the middle of Morningstar, and then I reiterated it in Iron Gold. But this series really kind of in a way when it starts to be able to just kill main characters in various contexts in sort of the reality of war and warlike situations, it starts to feel more and more like it's got that Game of Thrones energy to it where anyone's head is on the table at any time. Yeah. But even then, those characters are meaningful and and grand, I guess. Not necessarily meaningful, but grand. They're not usually just kind of suddenly gone and then unaddressed after that. You know? Like the, the, uh, their deaths linger a little bit within the story a lot of the time. Well, I I guess just to respond to that, do you think this death isn't going to linger? It hasn't immediately. Well, I think that's still because we're in the bowels of war, right? Like, yeah. we gotta... I mean, Lysander, there's a hard cut here in terms of what, like, Lysander does. It might come back. I don't think it'll linger even after the war. I think it'll take until the time when any sort of word gets to the rim and back, which is going to be months, months of waiting. I mean, or just to Diomedes even, but of course he might have also resigned himself that this was a possibility and, you know, there's always that possible reaction from Diomedes, mm-hmm. but yeah, you're right though. I, that was a little short-sighted because it's not part of this section. So I just kind of glossed over the fact that it could still be a major point later on. So Yeah. And I'm not saying necessarily that it is. I was just trying to address the fact that yeah. we haven't had time to even live outside of action really for this week. You so. are correct. Relish in Speaking... that comment because I don't give it out lightly to you. I, specifically. well, okay. Well, <laughs> Ooh. Let me let me just take a sip of my drink here and uh, <laughs> light up a cigarette real quick. I mean, let's take a drink for Serafina. Oh, true. Serafina did die. Another drink for Serafina. Big rip. Uh, favorite Serafina moment? Hmm. When she came through the, like the the secret rapist door in <laughs> in Lysander's room. Good point. <laughs> All right. 
I mean, the totally innocent, innocuous secret passageway that went to the guest bedroom that Serafina knew about. Clearly yeah. meant for mistresses. Not that Romulus had any, but mm-hmm. mm, for mm-hmm. weaker weaker types. Yeah, okay. So for me, I think my favorite moment with Serafina was probably all the way back when she was rescued on the Vindabona. I think that her initial appearance is this sort of furious golden child with like encompassed with rage is a fantastic one then the secondary one is all the way back in Morningstar when Darrow meets her for the first time yeah I was just gonna say that that's a that's another great moment but I don't know if that counts because she is effectively a different character she's the same person Um, but she is a different character well as as different of a character as we are we were when we were children you know yeah exactly I don't consider me the same person as I was when I was a child no no, but it was still your childhood. Like, it was still you. Sure. You know? You just, you were learning how to behave. Yeah. Or how not to behave. In, well, yeah, I didn't, context. I didn't do that. You didn't absorb anything from your childhood. Uh, mm. Chapter 15, Darrow Tyke. It is excellent here, though, to see, like, Darrow's remark about Tyke and how this compares to the beginning of Iron Gold when he remarks that Lorne adored the city and, like, cried walking the streets and whatnot. It's as though now, through the work of liberation, he understands that the, the that beauty as he walks through the streets and kind of gets to gets to see and witness that. However, circumstances have changed pretty dramatically as this city is about to die. I mean, at this point in the story, what isn't about to die? <laughs> you know? Like, oh my god, I everything is about to die. I yeah. I totally agree with you. It is so true. Everything is on the table here. Uh, I was trying to like dodge around shit, but like literally everything is on the table. This is even at the end of this chapter. This is the closest we've seen Darrow to death. Like it is. Mm, And it's unresolved. We we almost thought like we were left thinking he might have fucking died at the end of book two. That's true. That's true. Like. It was completely plausible that he didn't fucking survive the end of Golden Sun. So mm-hmm. I don't I don't know if this is the closest to death that he's been, but it's not sunshine and rainbows. He's in a little bit of a dire situation. Yeah. The point being, I totally agree with you with what isn't going to die at this point. Mm-hmm. It's just it's all it is all on the table. It yeah. is it is brutal. And the wave of which you predicted comes to pass, not as a tool for reprisal in the way that you thought, but you were definitely onto something. And it turned out to be far more destructive as it literally washes up against the mountain, drowns millions. Doe realizes sort of the, the weight of what's happening and the, the degree to which his order has been exceeded. And it's all just fucking gnarly. Good work. Yeah, yeah. fucking called it. <laughs> kind of. As addressed at the beginning of the show, you kind of called nope, it. I'm, like, I'm not... All right, so you you use the word called it, right? I said kind of. No, I but you, you said you said called it. I did, and then That's I corrected all I need. myself. That's all I need. I, I want to read just, like, a couple of descriptions of the Wave and Storm here, because, again, I think that not only has Pierce Brown leveled up the combat, leveled up the war, increased the sort of the stakes of everything brilliantly inside of this first 145 pages or what have you, but he has also changed his prose game in a dramatic way. His prose is entirely fresh. It still obviously is written very similar, but this does feel like 
I mean, we're on book five. It's his fifth book that he's ever written. He's written one other short story ever, and his prose feels sharp here. So I want to read some of those descriptions. Huge shadowy forms descend into the storm, their eldritch contours suggested by spasms of lightning. I fucking love that. You you know eldritch, right? The term eldritch. Mm, nope. So the term eldritch would be just, used. I don't. I don't know the origin of it. It would generally be used to describe things of a um, like Lovecraftian nature, like tentacles and sort of this otherworldly thing reaching out. And so the idea that there are these shadowy forms flying, and the lightning is the only thing that creates their shadows and like shows them for what they are is kind of very, very Lovecraftian, where, like, you don't actually see the thing, you just see kind of the the vague definition of the thing. Anyway, there's that. So, they stand no chance. As I watch, the sea ripples like a single organism, and from the gray obscurity of the storm comes a wave that would make a European stop and stare. The tidal wave is a kilometer tall. It buckles the first 20 blocks of the city's oceanfront and sweeps uphill towards the mountains, only stopped by elevation just short of the Harper's Plaza. Oh, wow. Oh, God. That's such an insanely big wave. So after reading this, I looked up the actual, like, size of the record-breaking wave in Earth, like on Earth. And as far as what's been recorded, it was 1958 in, uh, in Alaska can't remember the bay i think it starts with an l but that was the biggest wave it was 1700 feet which is just over half a kilometer so this is twice that size twice the biggest recorded tsunami on earth fucking crazy wow yeah yeah so that just to give give that scale context that is absolutely like how tall is a kilometer and i'm not taking feet i'm thinking like building floor size a lot it's tall. It's pretty pretty fucking tall, I'd say. Wow, super funny. I googled this question. Someone asked it on Quora, Quora, and you can actually find the question. And the question was asked by someone who had read this book, this story, and asked how tall a one kilometer wave would be. This is fucking amazing. It's 464 stories tall. Jesus Christ. 464 stories what's the uh the tallest building in the u.s to put it into context the world's tallest building the Dubai's burj khalifa is 41 stories shy of that so it is the wave is larger than the biggest building in the world which is an absurd building by the way yeah that's why i asked for the tallest one in the u.s because the one the dubai stuff is just bonkers Right, right. And irrelevant for the most part. I mean, it's just, it's absolutely nuts. That's insane. Like, I I actually didn't even have a grasp of how tall that was until that moment. Like, I was like, oh, a kilometer. Like, a kilometer's a long way up. Of course, duh. And it's it's really big. It's double the size of the largest wave on Earth. That's crazy. What's Uh, the... You put it into a building perspective, and you're like, oh, so that's how it washes up against a fucking mountainside. All right, we spent a lot of time talking about the wave, but it's so... So it's so necessary. Fucking big. It's, it's so, so fucking, fucking big. big. It cannot be understated how big this wave is. So the absolute devastation of this scene is a fantastic tactical advantage for Darrow, of course. But as Alexander rightly, rightfully points out, it is an absolute genocide for those along the coasts. 
And I think that we're going to talk about this a little bit more as we continue onward, but this feels like maybe the first of a couple of moments where Darrow kind of questions his war decision a little bit. And I think that it kind of, we start to see a shift here, potentially. And I think that this is kind of maybe the first moment. It's not a full full decision yet, but this is the first sort of inkling that maybe there's a change that Darrow admits needs to happen in himself. Yeah. He, specifically within this section, he definitely goes through a change. And this seems to be the, the first moment where that starts to happen. Starts to make its way into his brain. Just... Yeah. The, the focus on, or the change of focus from defeating the enemy to preserving your army. Yeah, and I, I would go so far as to extend the metaphor just a little bit. And obviously, like, he speaks directly about his army and sort of the choices there a little bit later. We'll talk about that in just a minute or two after we get over a really big emotional hurdle. Um, but I think that in, in large part, if we look back on Iron Gold, we can see this character of whom is obsessed with the destruction of the enemy, who is obsessed with the death of the Ash Lord at all costs, at all costs. And here, in the midst of war, Darrow grapples with a very different question and decides that instead it's it's maybe not about that. It's maybe there's maybe there's a little bit more. And we'll we'll talk about that more in a second, but I want to just pose that sort of out there right now to imagine and think about. Well, I, I think at least a part of it in this scenario is he's not necessarily straight up fighting Atalantia. His goal isn't to kill Atalantia in this combat right now, right? Well, I mean, okay. it would be if she was there and she might be no. somewhere that we can't see, but we haven't had any sort of contact with where she might be at the moment, right? Correct. And I, I think I agree with you in premise of what you're saying. However, I think the later bit where he kind of talks about the decision to fight for his army versus fighting against Atalantia, he like looks over the plains imaginarily and sees her on the other side and like thinks that he knows where she is. And that's when he kind of like makes the decision, if that makes sense. Okay. So we don't know for sure that she's there, but he he's pretty confident that he knows where he would have to go and chooses otherwise. So not 100 percent. I agree with you for the most part. I think it's just he has a theory in his brain that he would, you know, do it. Mm-hmm. so it makes sense oh man we get to i think one of the hardest sections to read of this book so far the scene in which we find orion is one of other utter de- devastation zero points this laser out through the clouds this communication laser directly at the storm god he gets a visage of all the other blues except for one and Orion have died of cerebral brain overlord and are just hemorrhaging. Their brains have overlord? hemorrhaged. Uh, I, overload. <laughs> brain overlord. Brain overload. <laughs> summon more overlords. Uh, <laughs> it's not even summon. It's uh, what? Spawn? Spawn Spawn more overlords. Yep. Yep. Good one. But another another one of the blues is sheeting blood from its nose. And the, the entire situation here is just dire. It, Orion, though cannot be dissuaded and she has pushed the limit to punish these mercurians and to punish the society remnant as a whole she was supposed to keep it at a single horizon with her blues but they pushed the limits up to two three four four times the expected result in chaos is what we've experienced over the course of these last chapters and that is that is what damage has been done to this whole thing but there's just so much 
pain, I think, really visceral pain felt within this page and a half, especially Darrow having to pull the trigger to end her life himself, her body sliding down in the chair limp. Uh, I guess, what do you feel? How do you break that apart? How do you think about the whole moment with Orion? Well, I mean, I'm not going to lie. This one hurt quite a bit. (laughs) Yeah. She was such a good character, and she was one of the few people that seemed to actually understand Darrow and that Darrow seemed to be open to, you know, like there, there aren't that Mm -hmm. many characters here that, that check those boxes. So clearly she'll be missed. Like I'm going to, I'm going to fucking miss her. But at the same time, going back to this section specifically and the actions here, I'm kind of confused by by it because i was under the impression that blues in general kind of acted more robotically than than humanly so having a grudge and doing things just to just to hurt a person that you're fighting against seems a little bit out of character you know well okay so let's let's take that a step okay and, and let's let's just break it down. I want to I want to address exactly what you're saying. And mm-hmm. I think that I think that you are you're on the money for what I would consider a majority of blues. Blues have been trained to act that way in, in a large regard. But that's also why Darrow chose Orion is because she didn't act that way. She didn't think that way. She always thought logically, though. Yeah, but I, I would argue by her own standards, she doesn't think that she's thinking illogically. She and, and the reason I say that is is specifically, and I'll read the quote here because I, I actually was going to pull this out and read this because I decided that it was important to the context of what we're talking about. Um, he asks her to, you must turn off the engines, scale back the storm. Can you do that for me? She replies, they can't win with Venus alone, so I will take Mercury. And he replies, Orion, think of the army, think of the people. There's nearly a billion here. And she says, rats are complicit rational transaction and i think that obviously the the weight of the phrase from the ash lord and everything else being here um one inside of darrow's life and it's not as though she told it's not as though darrow told her that line it's not as though orion has any idea about that interaction that she had that he had with the ash lord but for him it carries a different weight because he hears that and he thinks about the way that the ash lord thinks about war or thought about war before he died and this is her moment where she can burn Rhea to stop the spread of the disease. And so she is choosing effectively to sacrifice all for the betterment of the cause. Hearing that again in this context while we're talking about this, I'm on her side. I think she should have done it. <laughs> well, I think she was doing it. <laughs> she was doing it. Like, I, 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 I think Darrow shouldn't have stopped her is what I'm saying. Everybody on this planet is fucked anyway. Yeah. And I guess like there's there's the um, there's the whole like blood of empire foundation like a, a you know bleeding for the empire or every empire is built on like a foundation of corpses and, and like there's that whole like context that exists and so i think that she also embraces that but i don't think that that would be good footing to walk forward with in a certain regard do you think they're um, on good footing right now anybody in either army like everything is I, I, so on fire here i don't know I mean, okay, so let's, let's like, I, I really like, and we talked about this quote earlier, but the Calendora quote, 
of the thermal runaway, right? This is thermal runaway. This is not cruelty to win. This is not strategy. This is not a tool. This is thermal runaway. Yeah. And while I think that I'm with you on the fact that she's logical in thinking that this would solve the problem, and I think that, you know, all by all accounts, I don't disagree with it. I just I, I don't disagree with the fact that I think that it would solve the problem. I just also think that there are probably better methods. You know, mm, that said, that doesn't mean that's going to happen. Mean, that doesn't I, mean we I, have the okay. resources. So in, in that idea, what's a better method? Um, by definition what would be better billion people more efficient more humane well it's not more efficient because drowning the entire world is fairly efficient it's very efficient but it also kills darrow as well not just darrow let's not let's not glorify a single life but let's also step back a second and say killing a billion people for the salvation of the rest is still a lot like we were upset at darrow for the doxa ganymede and sort of the ends that that some of us were upset with Darrow piece. for the ga- toxic Ganymede. <laughs> okay, I'm <laughs> I'm upset with Darrow for the toxic Ganymede. Uh, I think the burning of Rhea is another great example of this, right? Like this is just instead of the burning of Rhea, this is the drowning of Mercury, and it. I mean it. Hmm. I I mean it's it's a tough question to answer. I think that Darrow is right to pull the switch and and kill her because I think in reality he sees a path out of this, and she refuses by all means to step down and like listen to orders he is her superior and while i think her means her rationality might have accomplished the end i don't think it would have been a good stepping stone in any direction going forward because you still have the rim to contend with you still have anyone in the air (laughs) to contend with who didn't land on the planet you know like there's you just consider Mercury a wash at that point. And you move on to the next one if you're the Society Remnant with whatever whatever else you have, or you regroup at Venus. You know, I, like it doesn't it doesn't fully solve the problem, but it does drown Mercury. You're right. It is a solution. I don't think it is the solution. Yeah. But mm-hmm. I guess what'd you make of Darrow having to pull the trigger himself and kill Orion? I mean, I would have been really upset if anybody else would have done it. Like, I, well, I think he's the only one that realistically is able to make that decision and it's a it's a tough decision to make but in his eyes and realistically in in general it's necessary because it's gonna it's gonna kill a lot of fucking people yeah i mean i don't think there's any doubt in the world that it is going to mess shit up regardless like the storm doesn't dissipate by the end of the story like by the end of the section for the most part I'm just excited so, to see the point of view that comes up in the next section where it's a person on Mercury who didn't drown, but maybe should have if Orion had her way, that has intense animosity for Darrow and comes comes back and kills him. Like, I don't know, Orion could have fixed that. Yeah, but <laughs> Darrow would have died if Orion would have fixed that. I don't that. think Darrow would have died. I think he would have drowned. <laughs> He's having a really tough time. So cheers to Orion for being the second, well, the the most important admiral and the second best pilot of the series. Yeah. Cheers. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful blue. As, as Darrow said, she was more of a myth than a person even mm-hmm. because she was so impossible to kill. I mean... And he had to do it by his own hand. Oh, man, there's just so much here. I, I could have an entire episode about we could have an entire episode about all the people who have 
died here and talk about all the shit that like ah. as though to interrupt our downtrodden and drowning city a carved face but a familiar name returns it's Screwface, a spy among the enemy has made it back to his army he delivers the news that we know ajax is making an attempt for heliopolis yes he is Screwface is one of four how like original howlers remaining correct i think we talked about this at the beginning of the show but this is what this came yes. from, was us, us talking about this question <laughs> and uh, trying to count out who's all left. And it's uh, Screwface, Pebble, Severo, and... Clown. Clown. The worst parents are still alive, remember. The worst parents are still alive. Yes. You know, somehow I think their kids are going to be, like, better adjusted better than, than packs. packs. <laughs> yeah, 100%. <laughs> because you know what their parents did? Their parents went back to their kids after they found out that they were abducted, except for Clown and Pebbles' kid wasn't abducted. Yeah. Like, largely agree with you. It's it's fantastic to see Screwface back, I think, in a large attempt. Um, and I think that this is actually a really important plot point that a lot of other authors, I think, would flub, right? Like, how do you get the news to a character so that he goes to the right place for the next scene? How do you get that information across to him? And this is so well foreshadowed and planted in the previous sections and even in the previous book talking about Screwface infiltrating. And like they talk, we mentioned briefly that there's something going on with Screwface, that this is, it's just a great, it's a great thing. I noticed that in this read. But then, you know, after this sort of high note of the reuniting with Screw, we go back down because we can't spend too much time up. This is the Empire Strikes Back of books, so we got to get the shit beaten out of us here. Darrow breaks the news to those around him that Orion is dead and by his own hand. But Darrow does something I think that is very calculated here, and he says, I cannot afford to mourn, but then instead proceeds to go through an equation, a rational transaction a call back to the words that both orion speaks that we already discussed a little bit as well as something that the ash lord brought up to him in the previous book that's where his memory goes is thinking about Rey as a rational transaction thinking about all of this war and all of this deceit as a rational transaction and i think that this is a really interesting point here he's even kind of like denied the request of the acrosians of elland and of alexander to go save people down below and boy does this feel like the cold a cold move from the Reaper. But I think that this is also another acknowledgement point where we start to see Darrow come back in a way. Yeah. But it's it's cold right now, but it plants the seeds for the comeback that's about to happen. Even for Darrow, it's a little insane how cold it is. We know that he knows what needs to be done. And I think we believe, and I think we know, if he had a choice he would choose to save as many people as possible. That's kind of been a theme for him in general throughout all of the books. Darrow's? Yeah. I mean, not really Iron Gold, but... I I think so. I think so, because everything that he's done, he felt like was the only option. And maybe that's a flaw of himself, thinking that this is the only option, when maybe there were other options, but... I think if he saw a path where people could be saved, he would take it. While also, like specifically, a path where people would be saved while he's also maintaining military superiority. Yeah, I think that's the important part here, right? Mm-hmm. We're, we're, we're about to talk about Lysander, yeah. who could have maintained his military superiority 
as a he's not a leader, but the other folks, Kalindor and Roan, are leaders of the society remnant, and they absolutely could take off. And Cicero's like, why wouldn't you take off? And Lysander's like, I'm going to stand with the men and I'm going to make sure that we do the right thing. I'm going to try to figure out a way to get them out of here. Compare that to this. And Darrow is unwilling to sacrifice these these two knights that are with him to go save any lives whatsoever because they're a tactical advantage. And he thinks about them as tactical pieces. Mm-hmm. And it's all a rational transaction to him. One where right. the drowned are going to drown no matter what. And he needs to keep the momentum going forward. He needs to keep the war engine churning and burning. Right. Exactly. It's tough. But I think that we need to dig this hole, right, so that we can get to the the emotional core of we've been driving at for books now, right? Which, again, I'm going to say that rational transaction. His internal reflection that comes shortly hereafter on when did this start? When did I become this person who made these sort of equations and this mathematical divide over life and all of these different things. And it, we've been talking about it for months and it's so hard to pinpoint. And he puts everything into words that we poked at over the course of the last book. You know, we had this kind of large discussion about the Reaper versus Darrow and he kind of re interrogates that for himself. He actually interrogates it, I think for himself for the first time. I let fear drive my hope away. I let war become me and my men followed Atalantia's army isn't worth mine. If I die, it should not be taking her life, but it should be saving theirs. And I think that, as we've said, this is a critical turning point for Darrow. And this time, I, like, mean Darrow. This is a moment of reflection where he faces the Reaper, as we've discussed him, head-on, comes to realize that he's been horrifically wrong. He's made the wrong choices constantly, despite good intentions in the end. So he's been doing the wrong things for the right reason, sure. But this this moment here on 121 feels like he is finally leveling his head after books and books of violence. What do you think? I'm curious if it's enough, you know, Mm. if that's enough Mm -hmm. of a redemption, because truly, even though he's he's kind of realized what what's been happening, it's not changing action. All it's changing is motivation. So I, I think it changes action just a smidge, and I think that we addressed this a little bit earlier. But like, he's not going after Atalantia. But it's not right now. Well, no, I think in the quote he specifically says that Atalantia's army isn't worth mine, and so he's making the decision to not chase after Atalantia and to instead save the lives. But he hasn't made that decision yet. Like he he's made the decision of what he's going to do, and he's talked about the decision of what he might do in the future. But in the heat of the moment, he hasn't made that decision. Like, and clearly, there's no think, heat of the moment after this, so that's that's hard to talk about. But well, um, okay, so you don't. So then, I just I want to clarify here. So you don't read his decision right now to instead go to Heliopolis from Tyche as him deciding. Yeah, to is. save the lives of his yeah. men because I right. think that that you're is right. a decision. Yep, it is. Yep, you're okay. right. Yep, ignore me. I, I'm just making sure. Like, but <laughs> like, I I feel you because like, in the end though, here's the, here's the real question: Will Darrow maintain this sort of sense for his people? Like, will he maintain and continue actions that are saving lives as opposed to dispensing with them at the aim of victory? I think it depends you know, on who's on it, who's at his side. When that when those decisions come to pass, mm, that's interesting. I think who I do think you think is important for the positive decisions? Rona and Severo. Okay, I think Rona and Severo are the only two. 
I dig that. I, I really do, and I didn't mean to derail you. I just no, wanted to kind that, of pose the. You, you didn't really derail me. I needed a focus because I wasn't sure where I was going. Sure, sure. It is. I I think that it is such a. It's such a change that we witness in Darrow's character from sort of the the at any cost man that he was in Iron Gold to this moment where it's become about survival in a large way. And you might say that a cornered rat will always do something like this, which is another consideration here as well. But mm-hmm. I I think that Darrow is kind of wisening up in a way. Yeah. For now. I don't know if that'll stick. We'll see. I think that's the bigger question. I do agree with you. Will will he stay this way? So a little bit of the Rona Alexander flash goes noticed here as well. There's sort of this like flash of of interesting like I, I don't know whether I'd call it sexual tension or not, but it's some sort of like jokey bondy moment here that I like flirtatiousness and flirtatiousness. Yeah, that's probably the way to way to put it. It's it's a brief but great moment. And Screven ending it by saying see a kid to Rona is just a, a fun way and one that's made even more pivotal as we see kind of this decision manifest in Darrow of letting the Arcosians go to save lives. It's as though he has turned this corner and he's like, you know what? Go ahead. And he is kind of, I mean, as we've said, Darrow even assumes at the end of this that they're likely dead and mm-hmm. that they died for that decision to go save lives. But at the same time, he doesn't, he, he reflects on the potential loss, but he doesn't, he doesn't think it was a bad decision. It was a noble one in mm-hmm. a large way. Right. So I, I just want to address the last part of the question um, that I had asked as well here, just so that we don't skip over it. What do you make of Alex's decision to reject the peerless scar? So I think there are a few options as as far as like reasoning why. I think the most obvious one and and I'm not sure if it's the one that's true but the most obvious one that comes to my mind is the idea that the peerless scar kind of embodies the people they're fighting, you know? Like mm-hmm. it, it is it is the signal not signal the uh sigil, I guess. Mm-hmm. of of the elite of the elite golds and the, mm-hmm. this is completely opposed to to who they're uh who they're fighting at the point or at the moment and the other option I'll reiterate that one is a hundred percent my read yeah I, I think that's the right read on it but i think there are other options yeah and that kind of lies in the idea that his motivations are elsewhere He's not doing this to earn a scar. He's doing this for other reasons, whether that be Darrow himself, whether that be Alexander himself. Like, whatever his reasons are, they are his own, and maybe that's not what he's going for and doesn't, doesn't want to uh, muddy the waters of what his goals are and how he achieves them with receiving a, a peerless scar. So... I don't know, but I, I think the the one that makes the most sense is the fact that it doesn't align with who he's fighting for or or why what a scar stands for. That's where okay, I'm yeah, and I I think that there's a lot of depth to this decision. I don't think that it's one to be taken or even considered lightly in a number of ways. It's so interesting too because I I think we've been talking a lot about juxtaposing Darrow and Lysander. But maybe even more apt is to compare Lysander and Alexander. I think that they're on 
very similar trajectories given their age, given their experiences. They they end up being an interesting, another interesting mirror, another interesting pair that kind of complement each other through the different POVs. One of complete honor through action and one who believed that his words could be enough to stand in for action. Yeah, circumvent the action. Yeah, yeah. And obviously Lysander is learning that's not true. Kind of kind of in a, a big, big way. So, right. Yeah, um, they they also make an interesting pair because Lysander or Alexander is rejecting the scar that he's earned and Lysander is actively trying to earn a scar in a way. Right. So the chapter ends with Darrow's usual dramatic flair. I turn with a heavy heart and head back to my men to lead them south toward the battle in the desert that will decide the fate of us all. And again, fuck, dude, what a section, what a chapter, what a book. Man, like, what a fucking book. Yeah, it's certainly going to decide the fate of Mel. Like, it's 50-50. They win or they, they, they live or they die. Like, happens or it doesn't. 50-50. I just got hardcore deja vu of you saying that, but I, I love it. I'm sure I've I'm said totally it before. With you. I'm sure I have. No, it's I'm talking like this whole thing, but yeah. So, chapter 16, Lysander, Rider of the Storm. The, the reflection <laughs> of death right at the beginning of the chapter is really strong and evocative, really strong and evocative moment as, as it goes. The comparison of death between that of Cassius and Seraphina, I think, is a strong one. Lives cut short, their stories severed, and ended by fate's cruel. So, uh, this seems pretty on-brand philosophy-wise. Like, this seems like a very stoic way to look at the deaths of two of your close friends. Doesn't Mm it? Yeah, totally. Yeah. So, like, this, this is just more piling on to the idea of Lysander wanting to be as much like Lorne as possible. Even even yeah. when it comes to his thinking, but I think it's the I, I think I think it makes sense. I think it's the right way to think about things. So, but maybe maybe you and I are both biased in that sense. I think the reflection is one that we could almost pin on Darrow back in like book two. This feels very like Golden Sun Darrow in terms of reflecting on losing people. The war is awfully is obviously a lot more violent than the war that we experienced. Um, back then but i think that this is very much a similar meditation on life and death yeah and it is very stoic as you mentioned Mm -hmm. so we find out as well that lysander did successfully take out the storm god albeit at the cost of many soldiers and i i found particularly at the end of that the note about when roan is talking to him about kind of horses and the sun blood is there lying on the ground the fact that each gray being issued a horse is just fascinating to me it reminded me of the the movie kingsman where the spies are issued dogs to protect and raise and you know asked to kill it or protect it and you know that's kind of whether or not they they get into the kingsman roan sticking that knife in the head of the sunblood a particularly large horse native and carved for mercury was a great moment of world building and mercy i think in a big way i i loved this moment mm-hmm. yeah i i i love the story in general i think the connection to kingsman is what was running through my mind as well what's more interesting to me is that there wasn't really a right or wrong decision when it came to killing the horse it just kind of defined what position they would be placed in afterwards so like yeah the people that are ruthless enough and like feelingless enough i guess to go ahead and kill the fucking horse 
went on to be like the ruthless killers of the of the of the of the group. So I liked that that was part of the test, and it wasn't a test; it was a a placement exam, more or less. Yeah, it it is very interesting in that way. And those that have kind of the kinder hearts were actually put in charge of protecting the blood, as it was said ver- verbatim from the book. So I think that that's very interesting in kind of that context. And I think that it sort of builds out this world in which it builds out an inner circle around Lysander and the loons that is one of one of protection, one of honor, one of duty to and and like I don't know. It's it's tough to say precisely what it's pointing at, but it is pointing at sort of the placement like you're mentioning and sort of the heart to not kill something that you love is enough to say that it's unlikely that you will betray me. Right. I think it's also kind of fun to to get into the situation where like, all right, you're a total fucking so, like sociopath, but we got a use for you. Like, come this way. <laughs> you are a black ops killer. Yep, exactly. What 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 do you think they do to those greys that like shot the foot of the horse? Like didn't couldn't like kill it fully, but like maimed it on accident? On accident or on purpose? On accident well, is like a purpose different accident. Thing. Like a weird emotional accident. You know, they're like, "Oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to shoot. I meant to get it in the head and I shot it in the foot." Cuz there are going to be those, you know? Like what do you do with like a middling gray? Shoot him in the foot. I don't know. <laughs> shit, the, shit the gray in the foot. Give him a limp. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. That's so unfortunate. Oh, it was unfortunate for the horse, too. So True. Fair know. point. Yeah. Fair point. Oh, man, if only we had a character that had a nickname that was a horse. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Too Weird. bad. Weird. So a- Ajax uh, abandoning... Kalindora, Cicero, and Lysander after this quest to take the Storm God is a brilliant political twist of the knife from him in an attempt to ed- end the bloodline of Loon. He quotes back a story from their grandfather, and it's got this just kind of like fantastic moment. Even previously, Darrow said that it was unfortunate that the killer, like Aja's place, was filled by a man with twice as much the same sort of brutality in mind, but twice as ambitious. Like that's a brilliant way of painting Ajax's character. Yeah. Ajax is fucking crazy, man. I really like his character. I don't, I, I know this isn't like on, on track with your question. I just, I don't know. I really like Ajax. Yeah. And man, I want more. I want more from him. (laughs) I just want more from him. I think he's a bastard. Like, (laughs) here's more moving things. My book, my physical book is not with me right now. I read a little bit of it in in person, but then I started moving and then did not get to like bring it to the apartment or to the new house from the apartment. So most of my reading was done in audiobook form for this. And then I listened through it a couple times. And after this sort of reveal from Ajax, every like interaction with him, there seems to be some little like subtle hints of like, this dude doesn't like Lysander. He really doesn't fucking like him. Like the, there's bad shit's going to happen. Did you notice those? Yeah. No, a hundred percent. And I think especially in a reread, and this is something that like I didn't try to play into, but I you get a sense of these sort of hostile looks that happen after they land more than before. 
there's still some sort of resentment that goes on. But when Lysander reveals himself and sort of immediately undermines Ajax's authority, it's almost as though that was the only thing that Ajax cared about. And it gives this really interesting, it paints this really interesting picture as far as Ajax and Lysander goes that basically says Ajax has always sort of been very jealous of Lysander and his confidence and his bloodline and all of these kind of different things about him and sort of his birthplace and superiority just strictly by birth, which is interesting for a gold to hold over another gold. When in fact, the entire point of gold is that they hold it. They lord their birthright over all of the other colors. It's it's just so it's an astonishing circle mm-hmm. to be a part of. But Lysander specifically views him as a brother and kind of has this conflict that exists based on birthright. And I think that that shows itself very apparently in the scene with Lysander or with Atalantia in the scene with Diomedes and then a third time when it's revealed when Ronti Flavinius lands that you know he's he's immediately undermined just simply because of his birth simply because of Lysander's birth not because of his qualifications which Mm -hmm. is is an interesting and wild perspective to have too I think that it's such a good character beat yeah I'm with you yeah Ah, it's it's so good. So Lysander's stance on staying with the men, I think, is something that Darrow would do in large part. We kind of talked about this earlier. Early Darrow would have done this. He would have stood with his men and he would have chosen to to kind of be there for them despite kind of the depleted batteries and the dire situation. He's coming to realize through reflection and his time at on the rim that the right thing to do here is to serve the men, just like Darrow has come to realize as well in these in this these couple of pages. There's an interesting parallel here as they seem to cross metaphorical paths and sort of spiritual and war leader paths right before they cross physical ones. <laughs> yeah. Trying to draw connections between Lysander and Darrow is becoming more and more interesting. Sometimes they seem super similar. Sometimes they seem completely different and just week to week and book to book kind of. I'm I'm getting the feeling that they're both almost kind of converging on Lorne from two different directions. Interesting. Like Lorne Lorne is this ideal and this this feared and capable just warrior and gentle understanding philosopher and we're kind of getting both Darrow and Lysander approaching those from different directions. Darrow from the warrior side and Lysander from the philosopher side and understanding that there's the other side that needs to be embraced at the same, so- same time. A- as things go on, they, they almost seem sometimes more and more similar, which is kind of cool to see. I think that that is a fantastic point and not one that I'd actually considered that maybe they're both in their own ways converging on Lorne as sort of their their grouping point. And it also makes sense because, I mean, Lysander even says he studied this man for the better part of his entire life, for half of his life. All he did, well, not half of his life, but if we considered like childhood. More really, than like any other four, man, I think is what he says. Yeah. Yes, that's, that's correct. He has studied... Darrow so much and has has read, you know, so much about him and has this like very deep and and understanding of him. And so I think that I totally agree with you. I think that they are converging on Lorne for different points. I think to some degree Lysander is is, um, seeing 
Darrow is this opposite example of what he stands for, but also still understands him and believes in a lot of the same thing. Darrow fundamentally or philosophically believes in despite being diametrically opposed politically. Right. Entirely. Or morally. Yeah. Makes for a very complex story. It's it's fantastic. Mm-hmm. And then, like, you throw Alexander into that mix and it all gets really complicated. <laughs> <laughs> Because Alexander kind of is like his denying of the scar makes me feel like he is closer to Lorne than even, you know, Darrow and and Lysander are in a way. Without trying to be, though, that's kind of the difference. (laughs) And that's brilliant. You know, like that's just naturally like that. Exactly. And that's like that's what you want. You want the sort of like spiritual warrior king in a person. And I think that Alexander, before he drowned, was very much that way. Maybe drowned. Maybe drowned. Maybe drowned. But but as I mentioned, they're about to cross physical paths, and they do. There's only a few words that reach us over the hill, and those words are heart beats like a drum, the crux being raised in the air, and hell is about to rain down on Lysander. But the Howlers have arrived. But from the other perspective, the Howlers are here, and they're going to run the fuck over Lysander and the society. And they do. And there are these there are these brilliant moments, these brilliant kind of pushes from Lysander where they take aim and he's reading the situation. He's like, OK, they've got to be there. They're hiding in the shadows behind the Drakenjagers and the dust that's being kicked up. Shoot there. And there's just there's so much from the scene and this perspective of Darrow, this battle. But then Darrow arrives swirling like a god of death. <sighs> Darrow is a god of death. <laughs> Like, he acts the part, but he is. Like, he leaves a pile of bodies in his wake wherever he fucking goes. Like, he is ruthless. When When it comes to actual battle, he is, I mean, like, you, like, I'm not gonna try to, like, make up terms beyond what you already said. He is a god of death. He's fucking crazy to see. It's so much fun. I love it. It is gnarly. It is it is absolutely gnarly, and I, I love it personally. Mm-hmm. Um, it is, in many ways, just a, a fantastic moment in breath between all of this. Right. So as violence reaches for him, Darrow does not flinch like a man. He reaches like a covetous river. He pulls violence to him, drinks it into his current, and leaps around the battlefield with a seemingly mindless capriciousness. And by God, again, the prose that fucking Pierce Bound has crafted from different POVs even in describing the motion of in the ocean is just so fucking good, dude. I, I, yep. Fucking wish I could write this way. Yeah. Um, also, I think a lot of people try to write this way and write it badly for the record with the record show. I think a lot of people try to write this way and they suck at it. Pierce Brown does something that I don't think anyone outside of fucking like he's a, he's a modern Shakespeare when stuff like this pops up. How do you pronounce the last the last word you said? Capriciousness. Capriciousness. What does that mean? Yep. Capriciousness is a sort of impulsive, unpredictable form. It's kind of like I, I would say that it's mostly characterized by being impulsive or unpredictable. So it it kind okay. of jumps and it moves as it will. Okay. So there's this capriciousness about him because he is kind of unpredictable. That makes sense. 
And that's why you have a string of you have a string of adverbs here, which we know how I feel about adverbs, but seemingly mindless capriciousness. You could have just said with a capriciousness, right? But a seemingly mindless capriciousness also gives it this nice poetic weight, which is well, well done, well executed. I, mean, I would not it, cut the adverb here. It's just it's just a lot more adverbs rather. It's it's a lot more description that doesn't actually tell you anything. But yeah, but at the same time, it kind of gives you a sense of like flow around the whole thing. And if you don't understand the word capricious, you can understand mindless. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. I'm yeah. No, totally fair. In general, though, sort of the the description of Darrow within this scene moving around the battlefield. Does this seem indicative of the willow way or is this something completely different so i think that's really interesting i think that it is i mean i i think that it does fit in with the willow way right i don't think that it's a different style i think that this actually harkens back to i keep saying fucking harkens lately fucking I, I think harkens. That this calls harkens uh i'm gonna name like a, a character in a book's last name harkens at this point but I think that the whole as violence reaches for him, Derek does not flinch like a man. He reaches like a covetous river is kind of calling back to Aja and the way that Aja was described by Lauren saying, do not fight, do not fight a river and do not fight Aja in, in the same kind of way. And I think that this is sort of a verbal manifestation of the style in which Darrow cleaves through people. OK, with the willow way. That makes sense. I'm with you. Oh, man. What a what a thing. And this this chapter ends in Lysander's horrified screams as half of his face burns under a star shell thruster, melting through his suit and bubbling up his skin and burning his face. That's a pretty rough thing to happen to really, really anybody. Uh (laughs) So much for our beautiful boy. Fair point. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> our beautiful boys right we refer to cassius and lysander as our beautiful boys oh no yeah one is in pieces and the other uh is a nacho i don't know <laughs> <laughs> oh no and i can perfectly imagine that it's like nachos that you left in the microwave for a minute too long like where it's just <laughs> bubbling and black yep <laughs> oh <laughs> Oh no! Good, good, good description. Good call. I'm very upset about that, but also perfect. Good work. You know, and it it kind of mirrors. We're we're about to move into Darrow's perspective, and I didn't actually think about this until right now. But like Lysander's pain and like change of his physical appearance from this war kind of mirrors Darrow's in a way as well. Again, where darrow is suffering from severe radiation and is bound to have his hair fall out and all kinds of physical poisoning but before we get to that i just want to mention that right now but so Mm. chapter 17 darrow heliopolis i fucking love and this is a this is i think the most oft cited section of the entire series are these moments back to back the quote we brush away light resistance at the downed storm god is hilarious it's poignant 
there's just this entire pov this entire character's perspective this entire person's perspective brushed aside to be no more than a small conflict in darrow's eyes and i think it's so interesting because we have literally witnessed duro kill hundreds and hundreds of people if not thousands over the course of the series and to imagine them all as a pov that is experiencing this pain now that we've seen it through lysanders is horrifying in a way yeah. He doesn't like he described that entire thing that we just went through that we talked about for 25 minutes or whatever it was as a line, <laughs> a fucking yeah. line. Yeah. It, man, as far as Darrow's like interaction with these like pieces of resistance against his his movements, it, it really kind of feels like a, oh, I'm just going to sneak right through you kind of <laughs> situation. <laughs> Like, oh my god uh, Lysander barely hit the ground and Darrow was fucking gone you know like it, true it was for for Darrow it was light resistance yeah and fucking Calendora like lost her arm like in the in the middle of all of that and Dar- obviously Lysander ends up with his face being burned and there's just this terrible terrible like series of events from lysander but darrow like barely recounts it it makes you think of all the different times that darrow's mentioned small things like we we kill a pack in the corridor right like there's there's a whole fucking scene there (laughs) that has to happen that we just don't see it makes you also go okay in the adaptation there's it's gonna be so much more violent (laughs) it's gotta be than than the book reads you know You, you would think so yeah, provided it goes on to services and not Netflix, which would cancel it after like uh, after the carving. Netflix would cancel it after the carving. Regardless, the, the radiation poisoning, which we were just talking about, the fact that they're experiencing this sort of like hair loss and the bubbling of his skin and all of these different kind of exposures that have happened while they've been climbing over the Ladon in the wake of the Alpha Omega bombs that have been launched. It hurts. And the descriptions are, are definitely painful. 3.6 Rottengen. Not great. Not terrible. <laughs> fucking the fucking radiation poisoning. Jesus, man. <laughs> when when they finally make it through the Ladon, they arrive at Heliopolis and it has fallen. Screwface faces or Screwface runs ahead to scout as the entirety of Darrow's Legion is slaughtered by men in the masks of child faces mask behind these faces it, they're they're all like taking a breath even and like popping open their cockpits for the first time in a day and a half i think is what we learned and like it's been at least 24 hours since the battle started so they're taking a breather while they prepare for the next move and the fucking fear knights army bears down on them with their faceless masks their child face masks and murders the people directly in the cockpit stabbing down decapitating this entire legion splitting the oranges killing felix Audon. shout out to felix Audon. we're taking a drink thank you for existing appreciate Ooh. you sorry you died um sorry you died and uh he finally we hear atlas speak we've been we've been dreaming about this well not dreaming but we've been talking about this villain for weeks at this point and he says you asked me a question long ago it was on mars before we lost her you asked what do i fear I fear a man who believes in good, for he can excuse any evil. And that is, again, in a section 
in in just like the way that we've broken up these parts of these episodes this is a brilliantly written 50 pages 60 pages and it is astonishing the weight of that line and it's not it's not in it's not wholly original right but it is it is so good Mm -hmm. so there there's a couple different interpretations of this and i'm curious what you think he actually means here so does he mean that darrow is the person that believes in good and therefore is kind of unhinged when it comes to evil or does he mean that he himself the fear knight believes in good and darrow should fear him because of it because he'll do whatever to achieve it so ready for like a wild explanation of things that's going to dive into a couple of different topics because i think that this is to me this is a very important thing but i i think that this dives into and i don't agree with the man's opinions for the most part but i've i've studied a lot of philosophy and a lot of early philosophers of course were theologians so saint thomas aquinas talked a lot about the fear of spiritual evil or other temporal evil that exists moral evil um and that like spiritual evil doesn't exclude sin and it just it stretches in the distance as far as he goes so what i think that this relates to as far as thomas aquinas goes as well is this idea that if you if you hold in your heart that whatever you're doing is good you might forget what good means and you might do it you might seek to accomplish your goals at whatever means it takes which i think also sums up darrow in iron gold right like he is able to excuse the murdering of several low colors who hadn't even fired a shot or reared their heads at at him right at, just post the um rescuing capture of tharsis there are so many people that like die in that section that don't necessarily need to low colors and even the golds I don't know. There, like violence for for violence's sake, because you have good intentions, is not a a good thing. And I think that's what the fear knight is is kind of pointing out here. And in all honesty, PJ, this is my favorite line in the entire series. This is my line because I think that it embodies that there can be you can have the best of fucking intentions, but be, your intentions can also deliver you to the wrong means to attain your goal. And I think that Aquinas was back on this in the 1400s. And I think that Pierce Brown kind of, I I don't know if he's, he's trying to harken back to that. I know that he's classically trained better than I am for sure, but he is definitely calling that out here. It seems, it feels to me, it feels to me like he's calling out good old Summa Theologica or Summa Theologica, but I didn't have any of this in my notes, by the way, guys, just for the record. Like, I did not plan this conversation whatsoever. I, this is just something that I'm very into. Right. You asked the question, I answered. <laughs> uh, uh, I, what, do you, what do you make of the quote, I guess? <laughs> just delivered a, a, a diatribe of sorts. You did. I guess that's, that's, the, that's the core of my question, is what does it mean? Where, 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 what direction does that go? So let's let's take an example directly from the text right here in this section we're talking about. We had this conversation earlier about Orion and her justification of being able to kill the entire planet 
right? Mm-hmm. And Orion, I think, believes in good and can excuse the evil that comes with taking a billion lives for the good of the cause. Right. I think that's a prime example. That is. I agree with you entirely. And I think Darrow's actions completely apply to this question. But I also think that it could be entirely plausible that this is framed in such a way that Darrow is he he's it's almost said in a, in a means of intimidation like i believe in the good that the society brings and you should fucking fear me for it because interesting because it's not clear what he means in that so okay so i see i see what you're saying when i read this from when i when i think about it from atlas's perspective here my thought is he's looking at darrow and he knew Darrow before Darrow became the the Reaper of Mars in the term of like a Sons of Ares operative or the leader of the Sons of Ares. So he he met him before that moment. And he Atlas's view is one that is how do I put this? Atlas himself, I think, because he's he's a rimborn and what we know of him, he doesn't believe that he's a good man. He knows that what he's doing is evil and vile, and he's doing it specifically to provoke a response. He's doing it specifically because it's tactical. He's doing it specifically, like even even the uh, trigger warning, the the suggested rape of, well, actually the encouraged rape of Darrow by his five obsidians. All of that is is to say that I don't think that Atlas believes that he's a good man. He doesn't believe in good. He and and thus he doesn't like even apply himself to his own quote in a way like um, he just totally escapes judgment by his own quote. So I, I don't I don't know if I necessarily agree with you there because I don't think he believes he's doing good. But yeah, I think which is that, what I'm saying. No, I, I know that's what you're saying. Um, but I think it could still apply to his quote because I I think it's hit, what he's saying is that he can excuse evil in the in the pursuit of good for a greater purpose. Yeah, yeah. And I don't I don't think that the Fear Knight is and maybe impaling the idea of the Reaper of Mars physically and metaphorically, I suppose mm-hmm. here. Um <laughs> Yep. Is an evil act that in his opinion and from from his perspective creates more good in the world, doesn't it? I don't know that he believes that. And maybe this is maybe this is something that we need to work out over more time with him. Yeah. But I think so too. Cuz I part I, of the reason Yeah, sorry. I, I was just going to say part of and I'm I'm sorry cuz I'm interrupting you, but part of the reason that I I suggest this is just strictly because I think of him still like despite him being brought to the core and everything else in his youth and being sold off kind of that way married to Aja and whatnot I think that he still has there are aspects of him that are clearly inspired from the rim which I think comes through in this quote this is a very seemingly stoic quote he just realizes instead that he is the evil force I think and so he embodies it Mm -hmm. and maybe maybe by by your own reading what that means is that maybe he also like has the like in by his own definition maybe he fears himself like maybe he fears what he could be could he be worse than what he is right it's an interesting question to pose i think by with your addition to the question yeah so sorry for interrupting you my no, brain just went on no, a tangent no worries that it's understandable it 
where I'm coming from with it is, is there a level of understanding of the evil that he's committing? As a, I think he is very aware. He's aware. And does he believe that that those actions are necessary in order to bring in more good into the world and into the society that he's living within? I think that he thinks that they contribute to his survival. Okay. I don't think that he thinks that his survival is necessarily a good thing, but I think that I don't know if I get that from him. Sure. I be, sure. S- simply because of the I fear a man who believes in good for he can ex- excuse any evil. And well, then again, he, he is the fear knight. I, I, I think that he is trying to embody what he fears and mm. what he that, that's the read I got on it. At least well, that's not bad. The the other thing that I just thought of as well here to like add into the perspective and add into the conversation is maybe he actually, unlike a lot of the rest of the society, acknowledges the fact that the golds hold this sort of superior power in place of authority over the lower colors. And so that maybe recognizes that that it's not a good thing. But that being in power ultimately is a good thing for him. And so he is one who is going to take advantage of the situation. I think not unlike Atalantia. Like, I don't think mm-hmm. Atalantia thinks that differently from that perspective. And so they they kind of, like, fit together in that way from yeah. a morality standpoint. Um, that makes sense. But I, I do – I think that this is very complex. Mm-hmm. It's certainly complex. Yeah. I fucking this line. Mm-hmm. <laughs> as as mentioned i've been waiting to get here for a long fucking time dude i i called you the other day and i said i'm so glad that we finally made it to dark age and then we finally get to have kind of a full conversation about the series as it stands now um we're not quite there yet of course please don't spoil pj i swear to god i will cut your did something i will cut you off on social media that's what we'll do that's a non-violent thing that yes i will cut your that's so rude Uh, (laughs) did you have other thoughts on the quote rude i don't think so address i I think that we addressed everything i love it i love this so but wow does the fear night deliver i mean atlas as we mentioned orders the obsidians and others to castrate darrow fuck him in the ravine and feed him his own cock before slitting his throat all the while he sits on a mound of sand and watches the death of the reaper of mars he's not wearing armor he's not wearing a star shell he's just wearing a robe the dude is a fucking maniac yeah yeah that's uh that's a little insane just a little bit uh yeah yeah this this guy is up there Mm -hmm. he's fuck wow fuck wow fuck wow like <laughs> this is bad romulus right like this is what happens when you take those ideals and you corrupt them absolutely you know right. in a way yeah, exactly fuck any other thoughts on atlas <sighs> not at the moment i'm excited to see more i think the only thing we didn't mention or talk about at all was his specific mask that also guises his voice which is interesting I, i'm not saying again i'm not trying to reiterate that it's important but i think it's interesting that the fear knight understands that the unseen is more terrifying than the seen and understood. And so hiding behind this mask and also this guise that prevents him from, from his face from being known is horrifying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not using the term in any other way, except yep. for what it's intended for. Uh, it is. It's brilliant. Mm-hmm. Fuck dude. So, so good. Ugh. The villains, the villains in this book, man. But 
before Darrow is violated, Calway Zichar has returned with the Morningstar to collect his little debt. Midnight is here to save the day, singing the Reaper's little song, but with his own name. It's such a fantastic little moment. It sails over them, the gravity shadow lifting everything into the air for a brief zero-G fight that's so well-coordinated and a ton of fun. And Darrow ain't dead yet. Here comes Midnight McQueen. That's all that was running through my mind. <laughs> Midnight McQueen. All told, I absolutely love your your read on this. I think that it's it's great. Um, Midnight McQueen. Midnight McQueen, man. <laughs> That's he's, not he's a great fast. take on anything. No, it's a it's, fucking I, joke. I kind of well, in a way, there's sort of like I get this kachow nature. Kachow nature. Did you just say kachow <laughs> nature in all seriousness? I fucking did. I fucking did. <laughs> The battle continues, Darrow flying over and dispatching enemy forces at will. It's got this fantastic kind of momentum. It's it's a great scene, him bouncing around like a rubber ball with seemingly unlimited momentum and force bouncing off each of the conflicts and, and kind of leaving his own imprint before he finally hits a wall and has a heart attack. He's been pumped up with 10 stems, six were enough to kill a horse. He's brought to rest in the Votum Halls, injured and hurting very badly. Yeah. Heart attacks are kind of a bitch. Like just in general. But yeah. I think this proves that he should have like laid off the salt shaker. Just be a little bit more like my God. (laughs) (laughs) Understanding of what you're putting in your body. (laughs) Are you suggesting that Darrow was killed by sodium? I mean you said killed, not me. But yes, (laughs) effectively. Yes, that's what I'm arguing. Darrow murdered by too many steaks and potatoes. All right, all right. With we we get we gotta work on this like wording thing. Like I'm okay with using killed by, but murdered is a little aggressive. <laughs> You're saying that salt can't murder people? Yes, I am saying that salt can't murder people. <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> I'm just kidding. For the record. Your silence was enough there to pain me. So with that, the last what question you didn't see of the was week. me like breathing heavily and just like head all the way back, staring at the ceiling. It seems like a very this seems like a very us moment, especially to end on, right? Like this is a great this <laughs> oh, is a great this point is to the wrap end, up the podcast. It? Oh, we've got oh, one good. more question. Oh, good. Yep. And and then to end this part, of course, Thraxa and the other remaining Howlers, Sands, Alexander, and Eland, as we said, who may have drowned, maybe not. walk in, maybe, maybe not, <laughs> walk in and declare victory. And I think the victory cry of Thraxa is incredible, and the sort of moment when everyone charges into the room to let Darrow know is fantastic. The fact that Heliopolis is safe and the battle has been won is a fantastic moment after 140 something pages of absolute fucking mayhem yeah yeah uh well deserved well fought for well deserved so good on you take advantage (laughs) plus one to initiative (laughs) (laughs) so perfect dude uh, any other thoughts anything else you want to say about this week this part not specifically. No, I, I think I think we're good at the moment in that respect. How'd you feel about this part? Oh, so good. God, man. Are they, does it stay like this? Does the writing stay like this? 
<laughs> I know you can't answer that, but I want it to. <laughs> oh, man. What I, what I will tell you is that after reading Dark Age, it is a daunting task sometimes to pick up other books and expect the same sort of incredible shit. But then again, someone uh, a long time ago wrote a thing about it was a brief thing about the Game of Thrones and sort of how you can't constantly have red wedding moments. You have to earn them over time. Mm-hmm. And I think that right now, the only reason that we get to have this moment, this book, this section is because we've built up enough good faith and enough good momentum and different plot pieces for the story to now fall together. And I think that that's why we are where we are now. Yeah, that makes sense. That said, we move into your predictions. We've got a couple here to read through. So they're all yours. I'm going to let you read them to yourself and answer your own questions because I think that's fun um, for you to just talk to yourself for four minutes. Yeah, let's do it. So first question, is Alexander alive? And my answer to that is no. I think he succumbed succumbed to the Strom or the Storm, depending on who you are. (laughs) I can't believe you wrote it wrong while sober and then read it intentionally wrong. While, no, I, I wrote it right. Well, I wrote it right while sober and then changed it to be intentionally wrong while sober and then said it incorrectly on purpose while <laughs> intoxicated. So we right. are, right. we are four for four at the moment. Okay. Does the fear night make it out of the battlefield slash off the planet and uh, no i think he gets hunted down i think thraxa takes him down honestly so you think he gets like captured is oh, that what I you're think, saying yeah or does he captured get captured murdered <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think he gets kind of similar to seraphina just unceremoniously killed sure uh what is the structure of the next part point of view slash time slash location changes i think they are going i think we will see in addition of point of views small time jump for darrow and lysander because they've been on that planet on mercury so need a little bit of time to get get to where they're going and then um overall i think there will be still multiple locations that we'll be dealing with Cool. All right. Any other thoughts, predictions, wants from the rest of the book? No, I think we're good. I'm I'm, I'm so excited. I'm so ready for this. I, I can tell you, dude, right now, this is a very unique experience. I, I picked this book series because it's been one of my recent favorites and all-time favorites. And what's so interesting now to be in this final season talking about, or not final season, but the kind of final stretch talking about this last published book is that i don't think that there will be a point in any of the rest of the book series that we're planning on reading where i won't know the ending in advance but right now i'm kind of just exposing you to the shit that i know <laughs> like and now i'm also making guesses with you <laughs> like it's kind of a it's a tough place to be in no um, it's a great place to be in crossland like why would you never want to be in this position like <laughs> 
don't turn that evil at me. Uh, <laughs> you have to wait as long as I do for the resolution to this. So <laughs> it's it's even worse because I've had to reread it. Just kidding. It's mm-hmm. been great. But I, I just wanted to bring that up because I, I think about that a lot and how this is kind of a unique situation. And we're, we're not going to try to do these intentionally that way because I think that that kind of... I like to think with the show with the end in mind to some degree because it'll let us paint themes a little bit better and more cohesively and coherently. Right. Uh, but that said, I could not fucking avoid the temptation that is this delicious, wonderful, bloodthirsty series and makes me cry at night sometimes. Yes. Yes. So with that, next week, chapter 18 through 25. It's seven chapters. It's going to be pages 147 through 204 in the hardcover edition, first edition of Dark Age. So that's where we'll leave you for this week. Thank you, of course, to our producers, Tim and Andrew, for helping us keep our show's lights on. Also, check out our links in the show notes. You can find our schedule, Patreon, previous episodes, our websites, our socials, all in one convenient location. Yeah. We also want to uh, take a second today to thank our new patron, Barback Aaron Mistrilli. Aaron, you kind of hit at a weird point where it took me two weeks to get to you because we had already recorded the last episode and we were waiting to record the next one. So thank you for your contribution in July so much. We're very excited to produce all this exciting content for our patrons we talked about it in our patron exclusive bit of this episode but we've begun to release a new little series where we're re-releasing episodes regarding recursion which was the second book that we covered while we were um, kind of practicing and figuring out our groove and we are going to be releasing all of those old recorded episodes i don't want to say remastered but mastered for the first time and uh re-released to the public so it should be a great time and those will start being available we'll be releasing them weekly on the patreon very exciting absolutely so thank you so much for your support it really means the world to us if you aren't already subscribed make sure that you do and We're stoked, of course, for the next section of this little book, and we'll see you next week. See you then. 